Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, coming to you live from my apartment because we are still on lockdown here in New York. And first, Oliver Machand and Nathan Fagel, two of my colleagues on the MSCI ESG Climate Risk Team, join me to discuss the falling carbon emissions and COVID. And then Julia Jaguer, our healthcare expert, joins me to give a quick take on how the pharmaceutical industry is faring during this pandemic. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Economies are at a virtual standstill due to the coronavirus pandemic. Governments around the world are slashing their GDP predictions every day. The UN thinks the global growth will slow to under 1% for the year. And the US just hit 16.8 million jobless claims filed in the past three weeks. All this inactivity is terrible for the economy, but it's actually not bad for carbon emissions. You see economic activity is correlated with emissions, so when one goes down, so does the other. For example, satellite imagery from NASA and the European Space Agency has shown that nitrogen oxide levels, an air pollutant formed when fossil fuels burn at high levels, over China dropped when the country was in lockdown, and the Global Carbon Project, which is the annual emissions estimation body, said carbon output could fall by around 5% this year. Uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic, which kind of feels, okay, great. Okay, yes, we're in a global depression that gives me a current of constant anxiety throughout the day that I cannot quite name, but seems to always be there. But this seems like a little sliver of joy. Uh, and according to my guests, Oliver Machand and Nathan Fagel, two of my colleagues on the MSCI climate risk team who just wrote a blog called will coronavirus reduce emissions long term that is up on msci.com we would emit as a global economy around 50.9 gigatons of co2 equivalent emissions in 2020 that's a 2.1 percent decrease from 2019 levels or an 8.3 percent decrease from the emission levels predicted at the beginning of 2020 so oliver before we go into whether or not this is going to be sustained in the long term how did you both find this out so what we did first was we overlaid uh index performance and historical emissions we did that for the last 30 years and what we noticed was that there was some alignment between the two uh, metrics, but what we saw is that uh, index values were much more volatile. So we asked ourselves, could we combine multiple indices to track emissions a little better? And of course we chose indices that were more related to emissions like energy and uh, industrial indices. And by combining those, we found that we could build a model uh, that correlates much better uh, with emissions than anything else like GDP or past emissions or quantities like that. And that was the interesting finding of the model. Now, the downside was that what we found was that there would be only a 2% drop. And that's part of the result of index values being more sensitive to downturns than emissions. Right. So you took index returns, which for the layman listening, an index is just a representational set 
of stocks that are used to benchmark economic growth for certain sectors or regions. And you took these returns and you modeled possible uh, economic growth throughout the year. And so a 2% reduction seems better than nothing, but it occurs to me there's usually a massive increase in market activity after a recession. So it seems like there should be a similar increase in carbon emissions. I know after the 2008 recession, we saw a 1% decrease in emissions in the U.S., followed by a 5% increase because of all the money injected into the economy by the U.S. government. Nathan, do you think that that will likely hold true here, that we're not going to see these type of reductions sustained for any meaningful period of time? I mean, client scientists say you have to have at least a year's worth of carbon reduction to actually have an impact in the CO2 in the atmosphere. I mean, we saw, for example, after 9-11 happened, there was a reduction in air travel. Um, there was a slight effect on the real economy, but it pretty quickly we noticed that there was a rebound effect after 9-11. Um, people went back to traveling like normal. Uh, production went back to normal. Same thing happened during the 2008 crisis. And so during the short time periods where there was uh, a downturn, we did notice a small decrease in emissions. But right after that, you could see it just continued going up. Which is what you said at the end of your blog. I mean, that was kind of a leading question on my end. And, and I want to quote it. You said, quote, once Europe and the U.S. lift lockdowns and reopen borders, travel, commuting, and economic output should return to normal levels. Thus, the projected decrease in global emissions should be short-lived. If so, you write, the risk climate change poses to countries, companies, and investors has not dissipated. A much more visible and immediate crisis has simply overshadowed it. Oliver, were you guys trying to say here that not only has it been overshadowed in terms of countries and companies, but there's worry that the pain of COVID will cause investors to turn away from climate as an agenda item in 2020. Absolutely. Uh, that's our uh, main concern really here um, also with this study. Uh, you can see it already. Um, so the uh, COP26 conference, the big UN climate conference that's scheduled to happen in the fall in Glasgow is now uh, postponed until next year. And um, uh, that concerns a lot of climate people because this Paris momentum that comes from the Paris Agreement, which was um, supposed to pick up this year in Glasgow because all of these country targets would have been re reviewed, is, is now basically uh, come to stop. And, you know, we were thinking that if that is paired uh, potentially with this view that um, we don't have a climate problem, at least for this year, because of, you know, drastically reduced emissions and that it all looks really rosy, that the investors would think that uh, climate change analysis in COVID times is not that important anymore. And we think to the contrary, because uh, first of all, we think the climate problem is the exact same problem if not worsened um, uh, after the, the COVID crisis? Well, also worse, but what I'm worried about is, and I think it's a big fear, is that companies will use COVID as cloud cover to cover up their lack of progress on cutting emissions. 
For example, in February, when this was all starting to become a really intense reality for the rest of the world, not just China, uh, Kia, the automobile company, uh, their chief operating officer in Europe warned that the spread of the coronavirus could undermine almost every car maker's plans to hit the European Union's 2020 emissions targets. But if you were to look at our colleague Arne Klug's research, uh, he's done a lot of research on the auto sector. He covers it. He's a friend and, and contributor to this podcast is that the EU auto auto sector um, has not done enough to meet their carbon emissions regardless of whether or not COVID. And Kia wasn't really spending enough on research and development to transition their fleet to become less carbon intensive. They were one of the lower spenders. And Kia faced, in Arna's projections and his scenario analysis, Kia faced some of the highest possible fines by EU regulators at 45% of EBITDA, if its cars were as pollutive as as they were in 2018. So Nathan, do you think we're going to see more of this kind of COVID cover-up, this COVID obfuscation? I think what we're going to be seeing here is companies that were already not best performers when it comes to climate change are just going to use this crisis as a scapegoat of saying, we aren't going to be able to meet our targets. We haven't been able to invest enough in research and development. We're going to have to cut the budget from research and development because of this crisis. So I think there's going to be these companies that were already laggards in the transition that are going to be saying this, but then you're going to see some of the top performers going to, they're going to start to double down on the transition and say, well, now that we have this crisis and that we need to figure out ways to rebound from it, we can invest in renewable energies. We can invest in alternative technologies because we need to figure out what's the best way to move forward. Do you agree on that, Oliver? Do you kind of tend to see that in the same light? Or do you think something else is going to happen in that light? Another thing that I think will happen is that some companies will postpone climate action and the, the carbon budget will just become tighter and tighter and this potential um, and the need for action will just increase. So let's say the unprepared companies will be even more unprepared. So it becomes even more important for investors to look at this unpreparedness. And the COVID crisis is, is a prime example that shows you what happens when nonlinear effects are becoming a reality. And climate change is full of nonlinear effects. Yeah, we've talked about on this podcast how COVID is like if climate change could be felt immediately and in a concentrated form. Uh, but even even though I did just beat up on Kia, they're for saying they couldn't make their commitments. It's not that other companies haven't done the same. For example, the airlines lobby, they've already tried to rewrite the rules of a global agreement designed to tackle emissions. And what they said was, look, it's not we're, it's not that we're trying to dodge the regulations Rather, it's a matter of survival. And if airlines failed or if auto companies failed, then a lot of people would be out of work. It, it, it is something that I cannot stop thinking about, um, which isn't a good ESG factor either for a lot of people to be out of work. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there an argument for companies avoiding their climate commitments in order to survive? I, I don't think that a company really has to arbitrate between its employees and climate change. 
I think both are feasible at the same time. It's just that there needs to be a willingness and sometimes hard decisions will have to be made. But in reality, economies change over time. Company structures change. It usually happens after a period of crisis. And so I believe that companies have the power to both include the well-being of their employees and keeping them employed along with helping the transition uh, to a low-carbon economy. Yeah, it reminds me of some research we did for the our MSCI ESG Research 2020 Trends paper where we wrote about companies having to deal with both kinds of this new labor transition where a company has to simultaneously automate away part of the workforce while to build up a new part of their workforce uh, completely. And now post-COVID and during the, the climate crisis, it seems like we will need to look at another dimension, which companies that can simultaneously grow out of this pandemic while also building up their low carbon readiness. I mean, maybe we have to look at something like climate readiness versus losses to COVID. And now, with some spice, we are joined by Julia Jaguer to give us an update on the pharmaceutical industry as it searches for a vaccine for COVID-19. And Julia, last we spoke, we discussed how hard it was to actually get a vaccine going when, when you saw a pandemic or even a disease occur. So what has the response been to this pandemic from the pharmaceutical industry? Um, yeah, so so good question, Mike, um, and, and happy to talk to you again. So... Um, well, number one, the good news is that um, biopharma, academia, and governments have really, you know, there's just essentially a rapid response to the development of vaccines and also just interventions, which is, you know, any type of drugs and diagnostics um, to to really um, uh, address COVID-19. Um, but I think what it does is it, it, it showcases... Um, really kind of complexities and certain risks to investors that, you know, it would certainly be worth paying attention to. Right now, there are at least 80 experimental candidates in the pipeline, I think, probably closer to around 100. Um, but the problem is, is that it can take um, at least 12 to 18 months, if not, if not really years to develop that vaccine. So what we're seeing companies do right now are really just repurposing those existing drugs to, to really develop shorter term solutions, right? Um, and I think the key thing here is what's happening is that we have regulatory agencies are balancing this, you know, faster access versus the accelerated quality control and assurance mechanisms. So how are you seeing that actually being played out in, in the market and how are investors possibly affected by it in the long run, whatever that change might be? you know, certain certain market dynamics um, that are coming to the forefront. Um, and for example, one of the, I think, most most well-known risks that we're seeing right now is with chloroquine phosphate. Um, and it's sold to uh, treat parasites in aquarium fish. So it's a veterinary product. And we're seeing certainly misuse on that front, um, seeing some consumers are using chloroquine-based products because they believe that these, this anti-malarial product will prevent COVID-19. But, you know, again, there's really no, you know, it's not approved by regulatory agencies um, and the long-term safety and, and efficacy profile is just simply unknown. So what's happening is that we're just seeing, you know, risk of misuse existing. 
And the problem with that is also is, you know, for companies is that risks of litigations could also arise post-crisis. I mean, we're very, very much now in the moment of, of COVID-19 and um, it's, it's a very brutal, you know, disease, obviously, and, and um, you know, affecting, affecting everyone. Um, but in, in instances in the past, for example, um, one of one of the larger biopharma companies um, issued one of the first vaccines for dengue, and that was welcome at the time. Yet it was later sued um, by the Philippine Department of Justice over alleged links to ten deaths related to the use of vaccines. So I think once the dust settles, there may be other risks um, that that could come to the forefront um, for biopharma um, over possible side effects that that perhaps could have you know unintentionally been been overlooked during the crisis, um, even though companies of course are really, you know, trying, trying their utmost to um, address any types of, of safety risks um, associated with testing and everything. All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Oliver and Nathan and Julia for giving me their take on the news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. I hope you're doing okay out there. It's a very strange time and a very difficult time. So make sure you are taking enough moments to relax and take a deep breath and go for walks and doing social distance and everything that's needed. I'll talk to you next week and stay safe. MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.